You know, Christy and I, sometimes when we go on long road trips with the kids, one of them will inevitably say those four stupid words, are we there yet? And some of you are sitting here thinking, I know exactly what you're saying right now. It's the most ridiculous question in the world, but they ask it anyways. You see, all of us go through seasons of waiting. You're waiting for your report card to come out. Maybe you're waiting for the results from your doctor of the test that you took. You're waiting for that day where retirement can finally come. You're waiting for that day in which you finally get to get married. You're waiting for that moment in which you can finally, after nine months, have that baby come. You're waiting for that college acceptance letter. You're waiting for that child to finally potty train. You're waiting for adoption paperwork to be completed and processed. You're waiting for a prodigal child to return. You see, the Lord calls all of us into different seasons of waiting. And the question is, what are we to be doing when we go through seasons of waiting? Well, that's what we see happening in Acts chapter 1. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 1. We're studying the book of Acts together as a faith family in a sermon series called Sent. Up to this point in Acts chapter 1, we see that Jesus has ascended back up into heaven. He has sat down at the right hand of God the Father. But before he left, Jesus promised that he would send the Holy Spirit who would come upon his people and then empower them to be witnesses all over the world. What I want us to see this morning in the text is the disciples model for us what we are to be doing while we wait. And in Acts chapter 1, beginning with verse 12, the scripture says this. Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they arrived, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. They all were continually united in prayer, along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Like caterpillars in their cocoons, the disciples are waiting for the day when the Spirit would move in power and they would burst forth with the bright colors of God's glory shining all around them. But for now, they wait, anticipating, like a, a girl waiting for her prom date to show up. The disciples are waiting on the Spirit to finally arrive and show up in power. So what we're going to do for the next two weeks, today is part one of the waiting. And next week, we'll see in verses uh, 15 through the end of the chapter, what happens in the waiting. But as for today, while we wait for what's next, I want you to take note of these three things. The first is this, let's stick together with God's people. 
Let's stick together with God's people. Picture this moment. Christ ascends. A cloud ushers him into heaven. Two angels suddenly appear and tell the disciples, this is what you're seeing, and guess what? It's going to happen again. He's going to come back in the same way that he has just went. Then the disciples, they head back to, towards Jerusalem. Now, the text says that they made a Sabbath day's journey. Okay, what, is, what does that mean? Well, according to the Old Testament, you're only allowed to travel up to 2,000 cubits on the Sabbath. Okay, so what is a Sabbath day's journey? It's an idiom. It's a phrase. It's a saying that means it's about a half a mile. You can only travel about that far on the Sabbath. But it also became an idiom, a statement for a distance. It's kind of like, hey, I'm headed to Nashville. How far away is it? You'd probably say, well, about three hours. Three hours isn't a distance. Okay, it's, a, it's an idiom. We're, we're tell, does that make sense? So this is an idiom. They're saying it's about a Sabbath day's journey, which means about a half a mile away. Well, what did they do as they're making their way down the Mount of Olives? What's, what's happening in this moment? Well, we don't know. Did they walk in stunned silence, trying to mentally comprehend what has just happened? Or did they gab like middle school girls in the back of a school bus? We don't know. But what we do know is they returned to Jerusalem, verse 12, to, together. You see, one of God's gifts to us as Christ followers are Christ followers who stick with us. If you're a Christ follower and, and you don't have people in your life who, who know you and love you and, and walk with you, I want to invite you to pray and say, God, would you bring other believers into my life? God, would you give people who will stick with me as I go through this life? I need other believers who will strengthen me and encourage me and come alongside me in the same way that you need that in your life. People who will encourage you and strengthen you. People who will say, listen, I'm with you as you walk through this trial. You need people in your life who are not impressed by you, but they're there to help you persevere in the faith so that when your life is messy and hard and complicated, they're still there. And when their life is hard and messy and complicated, you're still there. You see, this is one of the ways God hardwired you just as the Father and the Son and the Spirit, we see community within the Godhead as image bearers who were made as a reflection of what God is like. He made you to live in community. As much as we might like the idea of being a John Wayne or someone who's off going off by themselves and you can pull up the bootstraps on yourself and go live your own life, God did not make you for that. He made you to live in community just as he himself is in community. We learn this from Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter four, when he said two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if either falls, his companion can lift him up, but pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one person keep warm alone? And if someone overpowers one person, two can resist them. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. You know, before the pandemic, something that used to make my pastor's heart so happy would be walking into a hospital and seeing a life group already there. 
is I loved getting beat to the hospital by the groups who said, man, we're already taking care of meals and we're already taking care of, of babysitting. And, and, and they're, they're just showing authentic community saying, we're with you. We're walking with you through this. You need that in your life. In fact, if you're not in a life group, I wanna urge you to, to prayerfully say, God, would you direct me into a group of people who I can walk through this life with? Why? Because you need other believers who will stick with you. As these disciples have just had this mountaintop experience and they're coming down and they're like, what has just happened? They're sticking together. They're coming down together. They're not going their separate ways. They're not going off and going rogue. They're sticking together as they're walking through what has just happened. You see, as followers of Jesus, we're family for Christy and I. Our biological families are six and a half hours away. And so we don't get to see them very much. When we do, it's a gift. But you're here and you're our family. And, and hear me on this. I need you to help me finish well, just as I labor to help you finish well. We're family even though we don't have the same DNA within our skins, we've been bought with precious blood. We're a people who have been bound together by the blood of Jesus Christ. We're a people who are a family. We're marked as those who are completely committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and I've said this before, if you make it your mission for other people to hear well done, good and faithful servant, you will hear the same. Give your life to seeing others walk with Christ faithfully and finish strong. We want to usher one another and champion one another to finish this life well, passionately following Jesus, still abiding in Christ, loving and honoring him. And when you give your life to seeing others finish well, you will finish well. This is task of following Jesus. Over 50 one another statements in the New Testament in which we are to love one another and honor one another and encourage one another and pray for one another all the more as we see the day approaching. And so we stick together because these 11, they're going to need each other in the days ahead. And Jesus knew that. And they're coming down from this mountaintop experience and they're all there. Well, except one. Judas Iscariot, which, Lord willing, we're going to address his departure next week. But Luke lists out all of these apostles who are headed back to their Jerusalem headquarters in the upper room, and there they're going to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And what are they doing? They're sticking together. But while we wait, faith family, let's stick together. Secondly, we see in the text is that we're to be a people who band together with God's people. I use that word band as a double entendre. Okay, I use the word band in the sense that they were unified together as one. They were a band of brothers. That's what verse 14 says. It says they were continually united. They were perpetually together as one. They were continually steadfast as a group. They were, there was unity amongst the disciples. They were of one mind one accord, one passion, one purpose. Jesus spent years investing into these men and uniting them around a common mission. They were bound together as one. This was Paul's heartbeat for the church at Philippi. He said in Philippians uh, chapter two, he said, uh, therefore, if you have any encouragement 
from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. They were a band of brothers. They stuck together and they were united. But I also use the word band together in the sense of music. You see that word for united there? It carries the idea of various musical notes that harmonizes one. Just as individual instruments make a beautiful noise under the direction of a conductor, they're blended together into beautiful music. Well, such are the disciples. This is a motley crew, the disciples. Mostly uneducated, blue-collar workers, every kind of dudes that are represented here. Peter, for example. Here's a guy who's quick to speak, slow to listen, He's a fire-ready-aim kind of communicator. Speak first, think second. And some of you are sitting there thinking, man, is that not my spouse? James and John, two brothers that are hot-tempered. Jesus gave them the nickname Sons of Thunder because these are guys who are always ready to fight. Okay, these are guys who are always ready to mix it up. At one point, they faced some, some pushback from some, some Samaritans and they thought, you know what, Jesus? Let's just call down fire from heaven and let's wipe these guys out, right? I'm like, man, I can charge a hill with these guys, right? Can you just imagine what the campfires were like with Jesus and these 12 disciples? So many different personalities and perspectives. They're also politically diverse. You've got a guy like Matthew, who's a tax collector, He supports the Roman Empire. And then you've got a guy like Simon the Zealot. His job as a zealot is he is a rebel. He wants to take down the Roman Empire. Man, you think Democrats and Republicans don't like each other. You've got two groups, one who is financially making a lot of money off the government and one who wants to take them down. And Jesus chooses both. He wants both of them on his team to fulfill the mission of getting the gospel to the ends of the earth. Do you see how that word united? It's various beautiful instruments making different sounds, but when they come together under the the mastery of of a conductor, it makes beautiful harmony within the diversity. I love it. Of the 11 disciples that are named there in verse 13, most of them were unschooled. They're misfits, outcasts, politically opinionated. But the disciples are God's reminder that he can use anybody. You may be thinking, there's no way God can use me. I'm not smart enough. I don't have a seminary degree. I'm new to the faith. Guess what? You can still be used by Jesus. He didn't make you to be like someone else. He made you for himself to become like his son. You be you in who he says you are in Christ. You ask the spirit to fill you and you watch how God uses you. But I can't stand on a stage or use a microphone. You don't have to. You be who God has made you to be right where you are. He's made you with specific gifts and talents that are customized just to you specifically so that he might intentionally use you and your gifts and your personality to reach people for his son. 
There's unity in the diversity. We see these 11 disciples, these 11 apostles with all these different personalities and political persuasions, different financial backgrounds. And Jesus says, I can use any of you. And he can use you, beloved. You don't have to be like somebody else. You be who God has made you to be. Uh, Quick sidestep. So this week I was at a conference uh, for pastors. And at this conference, I, I went through some training on how I can get better. And it was just rich content. One of the things I learned was that God has not made me to be a different kind of pastor. He's made me to be me. Let me tell you what I mean. Uh, I want to be the most faithful pastor I can be. But there's this understanding, this cultural perspective that says a pastor should look like that. And I see that and I'm like, I'm not like that. And this week there was liberating for me to realize I don't have to be that. I'm going to be who God has made me to be with the gifts and the personality and the perspectives he's given me to be as faithful as with who I am. It was liberating. And the same is true for you as a believer. Don't try to be somebody else. You be who God has made you to be as a passionate follower of Jesus. Ask the Spirit to fill you and watch him move in your life. You know, it's just amazing to me, these 11 disciples, there's so much diversity And I think about the body of Christ around the world. There's so much beauty in the diversity, different skin colors and political perspectives and financial and socioeconomic backgrounds that make up the body of Christ. It's beautiful. When we look at Revelation 5 and Revelation 7, we see that on that great and glorious day when all of the redeemed are gathered around the throne, it's going to be a a beautiful mosaic of different skin colors, hair colors and designs. People from every tribe and tongue and people and nation gathered around the throne and worshiping Christ. There's beauty in the diversity and how the church is made up of so many people who have different ideas and perspectives and socioeconomic backgrounds and yet we're united together around the gospel It's the beauty of Jesus that he takes people and he makes them brand new and he begins to change us on the inside. Even though we look nothing the same on the outside, we're bound together as brothers. So this week I put together a list of five brothers of mine who I'm really grateful the Lord has brought them into my life. I wanna introduce them to you. The first picture I want you to see is this man right here is Yosef. He's a bus driver in Ethiopia and he's a pastor. He's humble, loves his family, and loves telling people about the gospel as they ride on his bus. The next guy I want you to to meet is this guy right now who's Hussein. His story is unbelievable. He's a former Muslim who one day heard a street preacher preaching the gospel in Kenya. He turned from his sin, trusted in Christ. He then went back to his Muslim brothers and began preaching the gospel. His dad disowned him. His fiance called off the marriage. He lost all of his friends and family. If he took his shirt off, his back is covered in scars because he has been whipped, left for dead many different times. But he keeps boldly preaching the gospel. He goes into Muslim mosques preaching the gospel and saying, Mohammed did not die for you, Jesus died for you. He's a bold witness. He's planted more churches than we could ever count together. And this is a brother we have much to learn from. The next man is is Zabron. Zabron is a pastor and church planter throughout Zambia. 
His mission is to get the gospel all throughout sub-Saharan Africa. He's planting churches and he's reaching people for Christ. Unbelievable brother who's just on fire for Christ. This next brother is my friend George. George is in Hope Creek down in Belize. This is a brother who faithfully is a member at Light of the Valley Baptist Church, loves the people well. When he and I took this picture, he only had one tooth left. The man has very little money, but he is full of the Spirit. The next man I would love to introduce you to is Eliseo. Eliseo at this time was a 17-year-old pastor down in Mexico. This brother is really short, made me feel like a giant. He's a giant in the faith. He's going into unreached people groups all throughout the Mayan Riviera, preaching the gospel, trying to reach people. He goes from village to village preaching Jesus and telling people how they can be saved. He's pastoring a congregation where the vast majority are twice his age, but he's loving them well. He speaks three languages, English, Mayan, and Spanish. Spanish and Mayan are nothing alike. In fact, the Mayan is not a written language. There's no Bible. And so he carries around a tape recorder that translates the Bible and he'll press play and they'll hear stories in their native language about Christ and the gospel. And as I think about these five brothers, all of us come from different political backgrounds, different skin colors. We have different heart languages. We don't eat the same food. We have nothing in common save one thing, Jesus Christ. When you meet Jesus, he changes you. And these brothers from all over the world have been met have met Jesus and he has transformed their life. There is beauty in the diversity. And that's a picture of the local church. We're a band of brothers and sisters. We don't have everything in common. Various economic backgrounds, various skin colors, different stories of how Jesus has saved us. We are a peculiar bunch. And yet we have one thing in common, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who has made us for himself. The church is made up of a people who are bound together and there is diversity in our unity as we come together. We submit to the ultimate master conductor who makes us one. And as we survey the landscape of verse 13, we see 11 brothers who are bound together and there's beauty within the diversity. But let's not forget who also is in the room. Verse 14, the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Okay, the women, who are that? We don't know for sure, but if we go back to Mark 16, we're introduced to some of them. Mary Magdalene, uh, Mary, the mother of James, uh, Salome, and probably a whole host of other women whose names are, are not written down. And then we have Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus's half brothers. Now, by this time, we're going to assume or presume that Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, has passed away. He's not mentioned much after the birth of Jesus. In fact, he's not mentioned again. But we see here in Acts 1 that his half-brothers, these are the children of Mary, are listed. We see, and go back to Mark chapter 6, verse 3, we learn their names. James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. James was the leader of the Jerusalem church. He's an author, he's the author of the book of James. 
you go to Judas. He's the one who wrote the book of Jude. It's in your Bible. Eight months earlier, according to John chapter 7, verse 5, his brothers weren't believers. They hadn't trusted in Christ yet. But there was this moment after the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ that they came to faith in him. They finally realized, my brother Jesus is the Messiah. They submitted to his lordship. He became their Lord and Savior, and he is the one who was raised with them. And there they are in Acts chapter 1, gathered with the disciples, these men and women of various backgrounds, various testimonies and stories who live by faith in the Son of God. And I look across this room and I see various stories and backgrounds, various perspectives and political persuasions, various socioeconomic backgrounds, and yet we're bound together as a band of brothers and sisters who have one thing in common, Jesus. He's the one who brings us together. Maybe you're here today and you do not know Jesus. You've not ever turned from your sin and trusted in him by faith. May I say to you, he will receive you today. That if you turn from your sin and trust in Christ, he will receive you. The beauty of the gospel is that God sent his son who went to the cross, died in your place, and his shed blood was enough to cover all of your past all of your shame, all of your sin, it's nailed upon him and he took it all, paid in full and he was buried, but he didn't stay dead. For three days later, he came back to life and he defeated death. And so too will all who trust in him by faith. And if you don't know Christ, if you're engaging with us online or if you're here in this room and you don't know Jesus today, you can become a follower of Christ. Just as Kevin shared that moment where he gave his life to Jesus, today can be your moment. Your day of salvation, which you say, I'm submitting my life to Jesus. Jesus, I'm surrendering my life to you, and I'm going to follow you. You know what happens? Not only are your sins forgiven, although they are. Not only are you adopted in God's family, although you are. You know what also happens? God puts you in an, a family right here. Amongst a, gr a group of people who don't have a whole lot in common. We can't even agree on one football team. <laughs> but we have something far more important that binds us together, the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we wait for what is to come, let's stick together. Let's band together. And thirdly, let's pray together. Right there in verse 14, they were united together with prayer. You see the disciples and the women, Jesus' earthly family, what are they doing? Verse 14, continually united in prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer. They sought the Lord persistently and passionately. They went before the Lord together. Luke here is stressing their commitment to one another and to prayer. I went back and looked at this. Almost every chapter in the book of Acts makes some sort of reference to prayer. The prayer saturates the 28 chapters of this book. You see, there is a direct correlation between God's people praying and God's power on display. You see, when God's people pray together, God begins to move. I want to place a challenge before our faith family today. The challenge I want to put before you is this. Every Sunday, I want to encourage you to pray with at least one person 
on this campus before you leave. And you may say, okay, this just got weird. I hope so. Because you need people in your life who will put their hand on your shoulder and cry down heaven on your behalf. And it's a challenge I want to place before you. I hope that makes you feel uncomfortable and pushes you out of your comfort zone. Is that we're not just a people who show up for a good show. No, no. We're a people who are a family who gather to worship Christ and we pray together with one another and for one another. I remember a couple of years ago, a man in our church who had gone through uh, decades of drug addiction had turned from his sin, trusted in Christ, incredible story. And we were about to go to China to adopt our little girl. And he walked up to me and says, I'm gonna pray for you. He, I didn't get a chance to say no, which I never would. He put his hand on my shoulder and began to pray for me and my wife. As we got on this airplane, we fly to China to get our girl. And as he's praying for me, I begin to weep not just because of the prayer, but I'm like, who's praying with me? I'm thinking about the story of his past, a man whose life was so messed up, and then he met Jesus, and all of a sudden, here he is calling down heaven on my behalf. You have no idea the impact that can happen when you pull someone aside and say, I wanna pray for you right now. May this atrium be filled with people who love to pray together. May our small groups building, our parking lot, you just take time. Hey, before we go, let's pray together. I want to pray for you and what you're dealing with. I know you got a big test coming up this week in school. I know you got the, the semifinals coming up. Man, I know you got a big, big work project. That you, you need to nail this. Can I pray for you? You've got a child who's walking in disobedience. Can I pray right now for your child? You're just, this is what we do as family. We pray with one another. That's what's happening in chapter one. They're continually united in prayer. These are people who are committed to one another and asking the Lord to work on one another's behalf. Y'all, I'm not, I'm not a prophet. But I think the Lord is about to do something because as I'm talking to believers across the country, there's a stirring in people's hearts for prayer. And when God's people begin to pray, like really pray, God works. He begins to move. How it works, I have no idea. But God blesses and uses the prayers of his people and he begins to transform cultures and communities through God's people praying. That we're not a people who are pointing fingers and saying they need to hurry up and change. No, 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 no. It's upon me to get on my knees and say, God, would you change me? Would you work and make me more and more like your son? So what does this look like for us moving forward? It's the impact point. It's this. Lock arms with other believers and seek the Lord together. Right now, we're in a season of waiting. We're waiting for this pandemic to, to end. And whatever that means, whatever that definition looks like, we don't know, but we're all in this season of waiting so what do we do in the waiting? We stick together. We band together. We pray together. You see, there's even greater wake, waiting that's happening. You see, on February 25th, 2004, I was preaching to my student ministry at my church in Kentucky, and they're going to teach how Jesus washed his disciples' feet and then the most beautiful, godly woman in the whole world, I asked her to come up on stage 
and I washed her feet. And I said, Christy, Jesus is number one in your life. I want to be number two. Will you marry me? And if you ever want a woman to say yes, ask her in front of a whole group of people. (laughs) I'm so grateful she said yes. But then there was six months of waiting, planning the wedding, trying to get our ducks in a row. It's just, and I remember that season being so frustrating. It's like, can we just hurry up and get married? Let's go elope. Let's get this thing done. But it was a season of waiting. And through that season of waiting, God taught me so much about patience and grace and love. But you see, y'all, we too are also engaged. And we're waiting for a day in which we're going to get married. And there's coming a day, Revelation tells us, in which we, the bride of Christ, are going to go be with Christ. And we will be with him forever. And we're in this season of frustration. We're fighting through this world, trying to keep grinding today after day, longing for the day for the eastern skies to split. And they will. But we're waiting as we're anticipating that day in which we gather at the wedding supper of the Lamb. As we wait, let's stick together. Let's band together. Let's pray together. And that is what we do while we wait.